Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Well, good morning and welcome to a new semester of Campus Worship. If you have been at Sanford for a while, or perhaps if you're new this semester, let me just remind you of kind of our weekly rhythm. So on Tuesdays, as you have experienced today, we will do worship, music, message from the Bible. On Wednesday afternoons, we have a lecture series at 3 o'clock. That's every Wednesday. That's also a convo credit event. And then on Thursdays, we have campus worship, which doesn't usually involve music and more often involves guest speakers from around well, literally around the world. On Tuesdays, we tend to follow a theme, and this semester, our theme is going to be, in the Gospel of John, we're going to look at conversations with Christ. There are a series of stories in John's Gospel where Jesus has some kind of conversation with someone or some group of people that results in a kind of transformational outcome. And so we're going to begin this morning in John chapter 2 and look at the first in this series of conversations. And then as we proceed through the semester, we'll have different faculty and staff members from across campus who come and preach on different passages in this series, looking at the conversations Jesus had that changed people's lives. And so I'm going to begin reading in John chapter 2, and I'm really going to read two stories The first is Jesus at a wedding, and the second is Jesus at the temple. So two conversations, really, that take place in this chapter. So beginning with verse 1 of John chapter 2, this is what we read. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples and stayed there for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. If you look at these two stories, they're quite different. On the one hand, we have Jesus at a wedding, at a place of celebration. He does something that probably most of us would appreciate. He helps a party keep going. He keeps a couple from being embarrassed as hosts. He 
turns water into wine. He does something that is both miraculous, but also joyful and celebrative, and everyone there would have appreciated it, whether they understood that he did it or not. That's the kind of Jesus we like. But then in the second story, we have a different sort of thing that Jesus does. He goes into a temple, and then he disrupts what was essentially a marketplace. He acts well, at surface, on the surface, it looks like as though he acts violently. He's angry. He overturns tables. He disrupts. He overturns. He overthrows. He brings to an end. We have Jesus at the wedding. We have Jesus at the temple. And on the surface, it looks like Jesus is two different kinds of people, kind of a bipolar Jesus, a schizophrenic Jesus, a multiple personality Jesus. And we get a clue in the very next phrase. Jesus says, my time has not yet come, or literally, my hour has not yet come, which is another word in John's gospel that has a specific meaning. And the word hour in John's gospel usually refers to the time of Jesus' death, the appointed time that he was to die, because we see that word in chapter 7, in chapter 8, in chapter 12, in chapter 13, and in every case it means the appointed time of Jesus' death. So here's what we have. We have Jesus at a wedding and he is in a place of celebration and yet clearly on his mind is the fact that he is moving toward his own execution. He is, his life is progressing. His mission and his purpose is moving toward the time when he will be brutally executed. That seems like a strange thing to have on your mind at a wedding. But even as that is on his mind, even as he responds to his mother the way he does, nonetheless, he performs the miracle. It's kind of a stunning miracle. He has the servants take these stone jars. Now, imagine how heavy these must be or how large they must be. They each hold 20 to 30 gallons, and they've got to fill these things. They don't simply turn on a hose or the sink. They've got to go to a well. They've got to draw the water. They've got to carry it in. They've got to dump it into the jar. They've got to fill six of these jars, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons of water. That's a lot of hard work. I'm sure that at this point the servants are probably irritated because this is a task you perform before the wedding so that as people are coming into the wedding, they can wash their hands and clean up. But after the wedding has started, there's no purpose for this. And so I can imagine the servants in the back of their mind are thinking, why are we doing this? This is a waste of our time. And yet Jesus' mother gives them some good advice. He says to them, do whatever he tells you, which is good advice. However irrational, illogical, wasteful it seems, there's a purpose behind what Jesus says. No word is wasted. And so they do. 120 to 180 gallons of water become wine good wine. Like, I think this is a values violation here. And in this particular case, the people are stunned. The master of the ceremony, the master of the wedding is shocked. This is great wine. This isn't the cheap stuff. You've brought it out later in the party. That's not the way things are typically done. You've shown particular care and concern. You've gone above and beyond the call of duty. You have shown hospitality. You have shown kindness to your guests. This is what Jesus does. This is his first miracle. He brings them something. He brings them festivity. He fills them up. He brings joy and happiness and gladness and party to a group of people. And he does this even as he's thinking about his own death. This is one way that Jesus says, here's what it means to follow after me. It means I bring joy. I bring gladness. And if you are struggling 
diligently to try to live the Christian life and you just find that it's miserable and you just find that you're unhappy and you just find that it's a lot of hard work and you just find that for the most part it's stressful, then you're missing something. And in this context, if we lose sight of the fact that the Christian life is not just about doing all of the things that Christians do and trying to live up to some kind of standard that maybe is enforced upon us by our culture or by our climate or by the people around us, we've missed the fact that Jesus came to bring joy and festivity. That's what he does. He fills you up, except when he doesn't, which brings us to the temple. Because while the wedding was hidden and quiet and subtle, the temple is boisterous and brash and public. He makes a spectacle of himself. While at the wedding, he was invited at the temple, Jesus intrudes. While at the wedding, he brings joy. At the temple, he brings frustration and anger. While at the wedding, he adds. At the temple, he subtracts. At the wedding, he comforts. At the temple, he disturbs. At the wedding, he fills. At the temple, he empties and overturns. Because Jesus does both of these things. This is what he does. So let's look at the temple. We're told that he does this overturning by first taking a whip out of, made out of cords. And the word here in some of your translations, or maybe in a footnote, it might actually say rushes. And rushes were kind of like this flaxen straw-like material that would have been on the ground for cattle to sort of sit in to help absorb the smell and all of the sort of odors and moisture and so forth that animals create. It's kind of bedding for animals. So if you have in your mind this idea of Jesus picking up a leather rope or something like that and inflicting bodily injury on people, that's not the scene that the words seem to indicate. It seems to indicate that Jesus grabs some wheat or straw-like material and goes into the temple flinging it around at people who flee from the temple temple, not so much out of fear of being injured by Jesus' violence, but out of the sheer force of the personality that he exhibits in this context. The shock of a rabbi running through the temple and going nuts, literally taking tables and flipping them over so that animals are scattered and money's rolling everywhere. It's complete chaos. Jesus goes into the temple and creates chaos, and he makes people angry. He disrupts their livelihood. He loses them some animals, perhaps some money, certainly a lot of customers. This is bad for business. This is disruptive for the temple. All sorts of reasons that people had to be very upset with Jesus. Now, the question that this story begs us to ask is, why would Jesus do this? Why does Jesus go into the temple and go nuts? Well, there are a lot of reasons that people have supposed. A lot of proposals people have made. A lot of suggestions that commentators make about why Jesus did this. But the one thing I want to point out is that Jesus does not go into the temple and stop everyone and then make an announcement. Excuse me, may I have your attention? I would like to say that in just a moment, I'm going to go throughout the temple and I'm going to overturn your tables and this is why I'm going to do it. That's not the way Jesus acts. Jesus goes into the temple and he does what he does without giving an explanation. Now, I just want to say that probably in many of your very busy lives, there are times where things happen that are disruptive and disturbing to you that you cannot explain, that seem out of sync with the way that God loves you and God works in your life. 
that seem out of sync with your own understanding of who God is and what God is supposed to be about. And I just want to say that if it frustrates you that God doesn't always explain himself, I just want to point out that Jesus does not explain himself here either. Not at first. He overturns their tables before he explains to them why. It's only in retrospect, it's only later that they understand what Jesus has done. So if you find yourself in that place where you don't get it, hang on. If you find yourself in that place where you don't understand, that's normal. If you find yourself in that place where you're angry because you don't have an explanation, that's part of what it is to be a Christian. And so why then does Jesus do this? What explanation does he eventually give? Well, he tells them, you have turned my father's house into a market. So one suggestion is that what was taking place in the temple courts was somehow disrespectful to the temple, was somehow disrespectful in a place of worship. But I don't think that's it. The temple was divided into parts. There was an outer courtyard which existed precisely for this purpose so that when international people came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they could go into the courts, they could exchange their money into the appropriate currency, they could buy the animals they needed for sacrifice, and then they could go into the inner courts for worship. This had been taking place for centuries. So I don't think disrespect for the temple is what upset Jesus. Some have suggested that the money changers were cheating people. They weren't giving honest, an honest exchange rate. And you, you all traveled internationally know that that can make a big difference in how much spending power you have. If the exchange rate goes up, then your money buys you less of a foreign currency. And so one suggestion is that they were being cheated. And in fact, in Matthew 21, Jesus tells, where Matthew tells this story, Jesus says, uh, you, have, you are a den of thieves. He says of the money changers, you, you are a den of thieves. So, so maybe they were cheating. But I don't think that's what John wants to point out. I think John wants to bring out a different theological angle. Because John says, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? So here's what I would suggest is going on. That their practice of religion had become like a market. You know what a market is. A market is an exchange. You pay money, you get in exchange goods or services. That's the way a market works. Markets organize financial transactions so that goods and services move from places where there's an ex excess to places where there is need. That's how markets function. And Jesus says, you've turned my father's house into a market. In other words, for them, religious practice or religious faith had become a kind of exchange. You pay money in to God, you get something back from God. You go through the motions of exchanging the money, getting the animal, sacrificing the animal, doing your duty before God, and going on your way so that God takes care of you, gives you what you need, you have good crops, you have healthy children, you have a good family, and all is well. Maybe that's what is going on. The language seems to suggest that that's what was going on. People were busily going about their business, doing the things that they do, and not paying attention to what it all meant. Because the entire sacrificial system, the temple, and everything about the ancient Israelite worship was meant to point them to what was to come, and that was Christ. And here Christ stood in the very middle of the temple, and they had no idea who he was. They did not understand what he was about. They did not recognize him in spite of the fact that what they'd been practicing for centuries was meant to prepare them, was meant to point their attention to him, and they missed it. So here's the warning for us. 
It's the busiest time of year on our campus. So if you're in step sing, which is probably most of you, it's the busiest time of year. If you're a student athlete and you're in season, you know you're playing games, you have competitions, it's an incredibly busy time of year. If you're in theater or you're in debate or you are in one of the choirs, you're traveling, you're competing, you're preparing, busy, busy, busy. And on this religious campus, it's quite easy to turn all of your practice of faith into a market, to go through the motions, to come into worship, to swipe your card, to study for your tests, to go on your way, and to miss it, to miss what it's all about, to do it all thinking somewhere in the back of your mind that God will reward me if I do all of this the way that I should. I'm going to be healthy, and I'm going to be successful, and when I graduate, I'm going to get the job I want, the life that I want, because I've paid my dues, and God is going to reward me, and we treat our faith like a market. God, I give you this in exchange for which you give me that. And when God doesn't give you that, then you are angry. And in this instance, Jesus comes in and overturns their tables precisely to remind them that faith is not a market. So we have Jesus doing two things. Really, Jesus doing the same thing in two different ways. As Savior, as Lord, he fills you up because that's what he does, and he empties you out because that's what he does. And if you are a Christian or you are interested in Christian faith or thinking about it or not sure about Christian faith, you just need to know that that's the game. It involves both things. It involves unimaginable joy, and it also involves unimaginable challenge and frustration and difficulty. If you think that coming to Jesus, if you think that following after Christ somehow makes your life all that much more easy and you can just smile and be happy for the rest of your days, then you don't understand the story that we have read this morning because Jesus fills and he empties. He comforts and he disturbs. He does both of those things because he can, because that's what he does. Now let me end with this illustration. So when I was a senior in college. I lived in this apartment that I was renting for I think 90 bucks a month and it was worth every penny of that 90 bucks. Pretty nasty place. It was close to campus. It was cheap and so I rented it. Well the drywall was crumbling. The plumbing needed work. The place needed a coat of paint. Um, there were a couple of walls that I wanted to tear down. It was just it was a pretty bad place, so I made a deal with the landlord. I said, look, I want to renovate this apartment in exchange for, I guess, three or four months' rent. We worked out something. I don't remember exactly what it was. He got a good deal because I started renovating this apartment. And as I renovated this apartment, it kind of learned what I was doing as I was going along. It was a complete mess. To work, I had to cover my bed and all my clothes with plastic so that I didn't get dust everywhere so that when I got dressed in the morning I wasn't covered in you know grime and then when I would go to bed at night I'd move the plastic out of the way and get in bed when I'd cook in the kitchen which I could rarely do I'd have to move the plastic out of the way and I'd have to get to the sink and it was just it was very very tedious it was very frustrating renovation if you've ever helped renovate anything or had your house renovated you know it's frustrating and you know that when something's being renovated it gets worse before it gets better. You gut everything before you rebuild it. Now, this is what I would say to you from this chapter that we've talked about today. And that is, if you're kind of on the fringe of faith, maybe you're dabbling in faith a little bit, you're thinking about it, you're somewhat interested in it, you're asking some questions about it, 
that's good. I encourage you to do that, to have good conversations with people, to read, research, and think deeply and carefully about that decision. But if you are here and you consider yourself a Christian, you call yourself a follower of Christ, then your life is being renovated. The very fabric of who you are is being gutted by God. That's what he is doing. He is making you into something new. He is transforming your life. He's the owner of the apartment. He has the right to come in and rip out the sheet wall and the sheetrock and tear down some walls and move around the furniture because that's what God does. And when it's all made new and when it's finished, it's beautiful. But in the meantime, it gets worse before it gets better. So if you are a believer, then you should not be surprised when God brings you phenomenal joy. And you should not be surprised when God brings you incredible challenge. And if you're thinking about faith, know that it's both. For Jesus, it was both. To the people who encountered him, who were transformed by his conversations with them, it was both. Let's pray. God, for the men and women in this room, during a very busy time of life for them, I ask that you would give them strength and endurance for the road ahead. I pray that they would come to understand more deeply what it means to follow after Christ. I pray that you would bring them joy, and I pray that you would also bring them challenge, and that you would remind us all that you do those things because you care about us. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.